Hey, this is Phil Holden. I'm an independent director and consultant. If you're wanting to learn how to embrace change and navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast, my good friend, Dennis Giannoutos. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Hey, welcome to the show, Leadership is Changing. What we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Leaders everywhere confront similar obstacles because people are people, but everywhere you go, leaders are overwhelmed, disrupted, and under pressure. They run from email to email, meeting to meeting. Many leaders are not changing quick enough, which means they run the risk of becoming irrelevant and being left behind. The purpose of the show is taking our listeners' leadership to another level by finding their balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. I believe we don't have enough effective leaders in the world today, and if we can get the leaders to step up and lead change, then they can inspire real change. Hey listeners, it's now time to adapt in our fast-moving world, and I want to welcome you to the show today, and if you haven't checked out our Facebook group or LinkedIn page, Leadership is Changing, I recommend that you go and do that, and we'd love to see you there. Hey listeners, today I have a wonderful guest with me. His name is Phil Holden, and Phil is an experienced business professional with Chief Executive Leadership Experience over 18 years with organizations including Coffee Connection, The Lion Foundation, New Zealand Rugby League, Greyhound Racing New Zealand, Breadcraft, and Harness Racing New Zealand. A member of the Institute of Directors, his governance and senior executive roles have been underpinned by his passion for values-based leadership. Success for Phil comes with from creating and building strong teams and a business culture centered on a clear sense of direction and purpose respect for his colleagues and people at every level, and a drive for excellence that delivers stakeholder and community value. Phil is a professional director. He's the Deputy Chair of Cycling New Zealand, Independent Director of Harness Racing New Zealand, and Chair of Greytown District Land Trust. He runs his own consultancy and executive contracting business with strong interest in strategy, culture, values, and leadership. In his spare time, is centered around family, juggling the needs of his young daughters, and getting out on his bike and wondering where all the time goes. Phil, welcome to our show today. Thank you, Dennis. That's a very kind welcome, and it's good to be here. Great. Um, you know, it's a, a small welcome about uh, an introduction to you. Tell me more. Is there anything else that you want to share about your background? Well, I guess I've been really lucky that I've had, I guess, two stages to my working career. So there's the what I would call the pre-university phase, and then there's the post-university phase. So where I grew up in uh, in Bacargill and Southland, you know, I going to university was a, you know, for my family was probably a step uh, or a reach that was, you know, not necessarily achievable. And so I ended up working in a factory in a wool scour uh, in a carpet yarn, and I trained to be a textile dye, and I did that for nearly 10 years before I went to university. So... Post university, I've been really lucky. I've done, a, you know, I've had some fabulous roles. I met some amazing people, and I've had some life experiences that money can't buy in some respects. Yeah, cool. And what, what did you study in university? Well, when I my first degree was in uh, a BCom in marketing, and how that happened was that at the time when I was uh, working, I was working for a company called Bonds Hosiery. I was the die house supervisor, so I was 
20, 22 years old, thereabouts, and managing a team of people. And I was the youngest by far. And I used to have quite a bit of interaction with the marketing team because essentially I would take their particular views on the colour of the hosiery and bring it to life. And so I kind of thought, gee, that that marketing stuff looks quite cool. How the hell do you do that? And and so I had some conversations with this particular with the marketing one of the marketing team there, the brand manager, and that really set things uh, alight for me. And then also the, at the time, Bonds started a graduate program, and you know I got interested in talking to some of them, and I realised that the opportunities that they were going to get versus the opportunities that I would get because I didn't have that degree were quite significant. So I was only ever going to progress. I mean, I was smart um, I guess but and hard working but I was only ever going to progress if my boss liked me that was that you know or I impressed somebody whereas if I potentially had a degree I could you know in my own mind I thought well I'd have more control more levers and I could you know take the make the decisions that I wanted to make accordingly. Mm, good oh, it's great to hear and tell me something so how did you get actually into leadership yourself? Well, it came on me at a young age, I think. So when I left school, I was 17 years old and I was being trained to be the diehouse supervisor, you know, a trainee cadet. And I got collared by this shift supervisor, uh, foreman. His name was uh, Ewan Tilson, and I've never forgotten him, ever. You know, he was a fairly hard character. Tattoos when they weren't cool, you know, which signified that you were a hard man. He had one eye. He would be, I would say, late 30s, early 40s. But, you know, he was a smart guy that hadn't probably had the opportunities at up because of his background. And he collared me at 17 and pulled me aside and said, you're going to be the boss here one day. So what you need to remember is to treat everybody with, with the same respect that you want to be treated yourself. Now, that's a cliche, but when you got you and Tilson, one eye, covered in tats, um, a hard man looking at you hard, I thought, I better listen to this. And so at that time, I ended up running a, a night shift, and it was a bit of a gamble for the, um, for the business at that time. They had a big production order in, and they couldn't meet demands. And so I, got, I ended up running the night shift for a couple of weeks and led a group of uh, guys and had to teach them everything in that area who had never actually been in that area and we ended up delivering over delivering all expectations and it was simply because you know my leadership method was I set the example through doing and so I worked hard and kept everything focused and they all just followed and you know that so it started really young and then when I left home in Invercargill and I, I went to Wellington with Bonds Hosiery you know I was 19 and I suddenly found myself as the shift supervisor managing a group of people that were at least 10, 10 years older than I. So, you know, I, again, it was very much a style of leading by doing and, you know, trying to create a team where we actually all sort of supported each other. So I wasn't afraid of getting my hands dirty, in other words. And I learned those sort of on the ground, on the floor aspects really early. So that's when it started. <laughs> Yeah, mm. wow. And tell me, I mean, because I think today you're also with the generations, multiple generations working in the workforce today. A lot of the younger ones are coming through as managers and leaders today. What was it like for you to have people who were older working for you? How was the transition for you and how was it for them as well? 
I mean, it was initially it was, you know, I was a little bit daunted by it. I mean, I thought, God, you know, I'm 19. I'm from Invercargill. I've never been out of town. You know, hell, I'm just, it's my first time on a plane. And, yeah, here I was in the capital city with these people that had lived a completely different life to me and in an environment that was completely foreign. So it was hard, you know, and it challenged me on quite a number of levels. You know, when I think back about it, you know, I, I guess I just I didn't f- dwell on it too much. I just got on and did things. And, you know, there was multicultural and society in there, you know, big Pacifica, big Māori, a lot of Southeast Asian people, you know, so it was a real blending pot, whereas I'd come from a very monocultural background in Invercargill and Southland. So dealing with all that stuff was quite, quite interesting. And I guess I just, you know, must. You know, I'm, my style is one of collaboration and I think it started there, you know, it was, wasn't me, the boss, the, the big white chief going, now you need to do that and when you've done that, come and see me. It was like, we've got to do this, let's go and do this and this is how, you know, I think we should attack it, you know, and so as a consequence, the teams that I led on that particular shift at that time, we became quite high performing in our own way, yeah. but I didn't have the science behind what was going on, I just kind of, you know, it was... It was very granular. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what you've said a few times already is that you just got on with it, right? And you were on on the floor with the people, rolling your sleeves up, getting on with it with them, rather than sitting in the office and pointing fingers, if I can put it that way as, a, as an analogy. So yeah. it's a bit different. Yeah, exactly right, Dennis. And, you know, there was a little bit of that from that current supervisor who ran that department. There was, you know, a little bit of remoteness there, whereas I was, I wasn't cut from that cloth you know I was very much like my dad you know just get in there lead by doing hands-on you know and as a consequence of that people learn to trust that you know if I said I was going to do something or we were going to commit to something we did it so it kind of went from there but it wasn't without its ups and downs you know managing various egos and some of the conversations I ended up having you know at 19 with some people that were you know in their early 30s about Oh, you know, sex education stuff. It was just bizarre because, you know, they had, hadn't had had wow. an education as such on some of the stuff. So they'd be coming to me and ask me, and I'm going, God, <laughs> Amazing, a, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But I never judged them, you know, because that was yeah. my background was working class. And mum and dad worked hard, and dad had his own business. My mum was a, um, worked in a shop and, a, and worked in the hospital as a cleaner. You know, dad had his own electrical business, you know. You know, he left school at 15 to start work. That was that. Was that. So, yep. you know, as I said before, that whole notion of oh, I'd like to go to university, it just wasn't a conversation that we had. It was just, you know, got to get a job, son. Okay, right, cool. Yep. I don't know what I want to do, but this, you know. Yeah, and I also think sounds like, you know, also even at the age of 19, you built trust and rapport with those individuals and so they felt safe or they felt good to be able to come and have a conversation with you, which is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And I remember there was one particular person who, she was Samoan. She managed, a, a, well, there was just the two of her, and she managed a particular area and uh, that fell under my realm that was absolutely critical in terms of getting the detail right and the you know and the information right. And she was known to be a hothead. You know, she could be incredibly just temperamental and fly off the handle. So I spent a lot of time building a relationship with her to the point that, you know, I was the one, that, if there was ever a, a firework cracker went off, I was the one sent in to try and deal with it. But it didn't happen that often once I'd sort of come around because I just, you know, I just gave her the courtesy of time 
Mm. And I think just listening, it's just a, it's a really powerful thing. And I didn't even know I was doing it at that age, but that's essentially what I was doing. I'd go in and listen. I feel, and I think today, if you look at the, the leadership of the world today and what's happening around the world, people are wanting that right now more than ever. And so even think about it those days, you know, you're a pioneer in what you did there, right? And what's happening today, people want to be heard. That, that's exactly right. You know, and I was having this exact conversation with um, a colleague yesterday and the notion of soft skills, the leadership soft skills. And going, can you remember hearing that, you know, over the last decade or so? Well, to me, they've always been hard skills. The, that's where the actual, where the metal hits the road, to be fair, because you can have all the technical skills in the world and degrees and all the rest of it. But if you can't actually work with people, you can't actually bring them along, you can't actually create a culture and a team and all those things, which have traditionally been seen as soft, therefore not important, I think you're doomed to fail. And if you look at all the great leaders through history, and even now, you know, look at in our own country with, with Jacinda and other people like that, that, that that's that ability to engage and, and create a, 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 you know, a culture where people are, are listened and trusted and, you know, all that sort of stuff is really, really powerful, in my opinion. Yeah, it is, it is. And now you've brought the subject up about history, so here's the next question for you, and it is somebody who could be from alive or from history. Who's your favourite leader, Phil, and, and why? I've got a lot of them because uh, I'm a bit of a history buff. One of my favourites is Leonidas, who was the king of Sparta. You know, and the reason I like him was that his values drove his actions and those of his people at that time. So we're talking 480 BC. And his value set was so strong that because the, the Spartans at the time had made a commitment to support their Greek allies in the battle against Persia. And he went up to you know, address the gods and uh, read an oracle, and they, they basically said, you can't go, you can't take the Spartan army. And so he, had, because he'd made this commitment, he took his personal bodyguard of 300 because that was all he was allowed to do. And they all died at, this, at the Battle of Thermopylae. And it was his single-minded values-based leadership that really did has resonated with me you know because not that I want to you know he, he was prepared to go all the way knowing that he wasn't going to get off that uh, hill and it was a you know a commitment that they made and it was all about their values I mean ultimately those values destroyed that particular culture because they just got so introverted but the notion of it you know was I think really important Napoleon Bonaparte Another historical guy, and, but you know what has resonated with me in the, the reading that I've done with him about him is just the way that he engaged with his men and his uh, mm. his people. They loved him, and he loved them. You know, and he he was really smart and clever about how he was able to engage with his people and talk to his people. And you know, people like Alexander the Great, another one. You know, he remembered people's names in an army of 40,000 people. He could ride along that line and stop his horse and go, tell me about your dad or, your, you know, how's your family back home and how are you feeling? And, you know, I know you got hurt at that last, but, you know, those sorts of been able to um, take care of the little people. And I think that's something that I've always had in my back of my mind is that notion of looking after the people that don't necessarily get the recognition that they might deserve can really pay real dividends and you know I think that's just so important and our former Prime Minister Sir John Key 
if you park the political colour, I was lucky enough to to be at different places where he was at. So I was, and uh, at that time, I was CEO of the Lion Foundation, and we were funding all these different initiatives across the country. And he was invariably opening them. So I, you know, I, I got the opportunity to have a few chats to him, or at least just watch him observe him. And one of the most important things that he did more than anything else, and why people just support, you know, just, just absolutely adored him, was he listened to the little, he just took the time out, he'd make small yep. chat, and he actually connected with people really yep. powerfully. And it was a gift. I think that that ability to engage, to give people the courtesy of your time, to remember the small stuff and remember them, or um, at least engage with them, is really important, you know, right through from... You know, those, th- those three or four people that I've just mentioned. Yeah, awesome. They're, they're great, great examples that you shared there as well, for sure. And so, um, Phil, I'm just mindful of time and your time. So let's just move on. The next yeah. question I've got here is leadership is changing, and um, that's the title of the show. Well, what does that mean for you? Well, I think um, for me, as I said earlier, about the notion of the soft skills and how that has now manifested itself in our current environment to being something that is absolutely essential particularly in the post-COVID world that we are living in in New Zealand. The focus on people's well-being, uh, building the appropriate coach, culture, you know, t- looking after our people or people, uh, I think is, you know, I think that has been one of the fundamental sh- shifts that I've seen over the last uh, five to ten years, where it's moved from being probably not something that was seen as, as important. It was about how hard you were, how tough a negotiator you were, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was outputs and results at all costs versus actually we need to bring our people with us. So I, th- I think that's been a fundamental change. And, you know, and within the current generation of young people coming through, you know, I often, you know, you often hear the comments about, oh, the millennials, you know. Yep. You know, gosh, I've got it. You know, what are you know? They're just so young, and they just don't understand. Well, I had to facilitate a uh, it's kind of like a Q and A session at a function I was at with uh, a group of millennials, and you know, my framework for that is: well, tell me what the average age was to the audience of the people on the front uh, on the uh, control panel uh, for the uh, lunar land landing in nineteen sixty nine, and the average age is twenty six. You know, so. They, these were young people in 1969 kind of making it up as they went because no one, you know, they were at the forefront of it. And it's easy to think that they were older, they were different, but they were 26 years old, average age. So that means there was a hell of a lot of really young people there. And it's it's something that's easily forgotten when you think about where we are right now. So, you know, every generation's got its own young you know, challenges and those sort of things. So I think that that notion of the soft skills and culture and leadership has changed quite a lot. Soft skills, culture, and leadership. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, excellent. Very good. Listeners, I'm taking notes. I hope you're taking notes as well because Phil's sharing some beautiful insights here with us. Phil, how has your business or industry changed and what kind of pressures does that put on you? Well, as I said, I'm I'm an independent director and a consultant. I do some other executive contract work. And so one of the big changes for me has been pre-COVID, I was used to working remotely. Mm-hmm. Post COVID, everyone's doing it. <laughs> so every, every, everyone's um, so, joined you now. Yeah, it's quite been quite interesting. So yeah. I've seen the impact of that in terms of effectiveness, and equally, 
that's also highlighted the fact that we still need to find a way of uh, making sure that you have that human connection because whilst the uh, Zoom world is is incredibly effective um, and can make things is very become quite a pragmatic tool now. I think that the challenge for leaders will be how do we keep maintaining uh, the people contact, and it's something that I'm, you know, turning my mind to right now. Uh, certainly, as I reflect on some of the board stuff that I'm d- dealing with, you know, how do we if we've got new board members coming on, how do, how, what's the most best way of dealing with with an induction for them, you know, and how do we make them feel part of the organisation if we are not doing that face-to-face or we're doing it remotely. Mm. It's a big challenge, and I think that's been one of the big changes that I'm seeing in the work that I do. Yeah, great, and, and and that's so important because if you can bring them on and onboard them, they feel like they're part of something, then they're actually going to give more and it's going to be a, a better journey and experience for everybody. So I think that's very important, and uh, you know, that's they, they've got other things to focus on, strategy, where the direction of the business is going, things like that, yep. For sure. Yeah, that's right. I agree with that. Hey, if there was one thing that you could change in business as a leader today, what would that one thing be? Well, for me, it's always been about the people. And I think if there's one thing that I could change is it was for more organizations to keep their people at the forefront of what they do. And I know that that feels a little bit lefty. I don't mean it to be. I just think it's really important. There's a duty of care aspect to when people go to work, they have a right to come home from work. And I think that if I could put more emphasis on that duty of care, whether that's physical well-being, emotional well-being, you know, would be two areas that I, I think are, you know, need some more attention, particularly that emotional stuff. Do you, what do you think will happen to organisations if they don't put people in the forefront, if they sort of play lip service to it but don't actually follow up with action what do you think might happen well i think t- today's generation will see right through that and they'll mm. be they'll leave you know i think that the, one of the great things of uh, some of the generations of people that are coming through now is that they have a real very clear sense of what's what's good and what's not good of what's right and what's wrong so now you could debate the fringes about whether that some of it's accurate, but they they have a very clear sense of self and a very clear sense of what's what's what good looks like. So they will vote with their feet, and I think ultimately that will really impact on organisations. There's there's no question about that. And even you know you reflect on you know somebody like in New Zealand and the change that they've gone through over the last twelve months and how difficult that's been. I think that they managed to keep their people engaged. It feels like it from the outside looking in anyway. Um, and every time I've been on a plane, they seem pretty yep. engaged uh, from where they have been, given the you know the, the absolute downsizing of that organisation. So I think somewhere in there, there's a lot of effort going on making sure that people are still engaged in that respect. Yeah, and I think it comes back to an organisation's culture, the way that they've been working in the past, the trust that's there with the organisation, the employees. I think that all plays into it because... I, I'm not sure about you, but I, what I've seen as well, Phil, is that a lot of organizations have been able to pivot, adapt, bounce, whatever they need to do throughout this whole pandemic scenario. And a lot of that came down to the foundations of what they had around that trust and 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 respect for people. So I think it's really, really important. Yes, I agree 100%. And um, somebody who's a hell of a lot smarter than me said, you know, that COVID's an accelerator. Mm. So if when things, the things that were going good before, 
are now going really well, and the things that weren't going so good are now going are being exposed for what they are. You know, and I thought that's a really interesting thought, and I've locked it away because I can see you can just see it. It's an accelerator, so it's an interesting way of uh, thinking about the dynamic environment we're currently in. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you you and I have been employees in the past, and we have had employees reporting into us and things like that. Well, what do you think is, or how employees' expectations of leaders changed? Oh, look, I think that there's a, a, a real focus now on uh, people that, you know, in terms of what, what, is, what a good leader looks like, you know, they're not going to put up with perhaps some of the more command and control type of uh, environments. Um, and I, I think there's a real understanding of what as I said earlier about what good looks like so as a consequence of that they have an expectation of what you know what good leadership looks like and what they will expect from their leader and I think also there's probably enough mechanisms and tools to provide that feedback in the right manner to affect some change so I think that that's shining the microscope on what's what's good so you can be a technical autocrat but if you can't bring your people with you then that's a real problem and I think that the people actually recognise that. Yeah, absolutely. So they're definitely focusing on what a good leader looks like nowadays for sure. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, and so leaders, be aware. The micro- microscope is on us as, as leaders today. People are watching us. People are judging us. And they're expecting totally different things from leaders today. They're ex- I think they're actually expecting a higher performing uh, leader. They're looking for people who's high performing but real, somebody who is authentic, that's exactly right, Dennis. And you know that word authentic is gets bandied around a bit, but I, you know, I do believe that. I do believe that they they can see genuineness and realness in people, and they and they want that, and they have an expectation that that's if you're leading the team that that's what you're going to do. And I think that that level of scrutiny, um, just through the the world that we live in, whether it's social media, LinkedIn, all those type of mechanisms, you know, you you are under the microscope in a way that's completely different to what it was um, ten years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So in my introduction, I talk about change. You know, one of the things that is constant is change. Change is constant. And, you know, we're in a fast-paced, ever-changing world. So, Phil, what what makes a leader successful today in a fast-paced, ever-changing world? Well, for me, again, you know, the people thing's quite centric. Um, I think having uh, a clear set of values, I think that's really important as you as a person, more than anything else. I mean, yes, there's organisational values, but it's what you actually stand for and believe in yourself so that you know in your own heart and mind when things are going good and you're able to you know, critically look yourself in the eye and go, actually, I didn't do a good job there. And you know, that sense of being genuine and real to yourself, I think, is really important. Yeah, so having a high EQ and having that degree of self-awareness, I'm constantly amazed by the people that don't have that self-awareness and can't see that the, you know what's going on around them. And I've, I guess I've been cursed with that, cursed or blessed, depending on your perspective of the that having a high EQ, I've been able to see the dots and join the dots together relatively quickly. Nice. And I think you know, for me, it's always been, and it's an area that I've put a lot of effort in, is you know from the people side of it is you know I know when to stand behind them and and you know it's their time to shine I know when to stand beside them in terms of I'm here we're here in this together and we're supporting each other and then when it's time to stand in front and go this is the direction we're taking and if you can get the balance right in those three areas I think that's really important and that's something that I'm constantly you know putting some energy into making sure that I do and the organizations I engage with. 
Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Standing uh, behind them, beside them, or in front of them, depending on what the role is and what the situation is for sure. So brilliant. Thanks, Phil. Hey, here's uh, an interesting question for you. I'm going to get you to get your crystal ball out and start thinking about the future, if I can put it that way. Where do you see leadership being in five years? Well, I'm pretty sure one thing, it's going to continue to evolve. And equally, I think the human aspect of it is going to continue to evolve even faster. And I just, you know, I say that simply because of, you know, the world that we currently live in coming post-pandemic. You know, it's so easy to lose sight of that New Zealand's in a really lucky position versus other parts of the world that are still in lockdown. Yeah. You know, still operating in isolation. So, I think that that's going to expedite, as I said before, that acceleration of the need for that human inter- interface and the building of culture is going to become even more important as we move forward. So I, I think that that's going to be a, a core aspect of it. And I think also the well-being of people is going to really come front and centre, particularly as we deal with you know sense of isolation. You know, it's all very well working remotely, but you know you've still got to have all those connections with people and making sure that you're looking after yourself so i think that that notion of self-discipline is going to be quite important absolutely and i think the well-being you're so right around that um i mean i love what you're saying about the acceleration of human interface and culture and the well-being of people is so important especially now you i mean here i'm doing these podcast episodes and i'm interviewing people around the world and i have to keep reminding myself that you know, after this podcast interview i can go outside i can go to the local cafe go and have a coffee and there no mask no nothing where the person I'm interviewing is not going to go anywhere. They're going to probably go to their kitchen and get a coffee, and that's it. They, they can't go out. So we're very fortunate in that way. But I think the well-being of people, because they are physically, mentally, and emotionally tired, it's been a really big year and plus for people, and it's about how they now bounce back from that or bounce forward and move forward that's going to be really important. And I think the leaders have got to keep an eye on that for sure to make sure we're okay. And so it's going to be really exciting to see where we go in the next five years and how it's going to unfold uh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree 100%. Yeah. Very challenging. Uh, it's going to be real challenging for sure. And um, as in the acceleration side of things too, I think that's going to accelerate those who are great leaders versus those who are uh, should no longer be leaders uh, going forward. For you know, that's going to really, really emphasize that a lot. Awesome. Hey, Phil, thank you for joining us on the show today. If our listeners are wanting to get hold of you, where should they go? Oh, probably the easiest way is through my LinkedIn profile. Um, just type in my name, and it should pop up. <laughs> but yeah, that, I think that'd be the easiest way, and I'd love to hear from people. That'd be great. So, Phil, once again, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights and wisdom around the leadership side of things in your experience. So, thank you. No, thank you, Dennis. It's, uh, I really enjoyed the chat. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, listeners, what we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Change is incredibly scary, especially with the unknown, the unfamiliar territory. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing. Hey, look out for the episodes as they're being released. Download them, have a listen, put a review and a rating, and share them with your friends, your family, your network. If there's any feedback you'd like to give me on the show, or if there's a question you'd like me to ask my guests as I interview them, or a question for the Ask Dennis Freestyle episode, which happens once a week, send me an email, dennis at leadingchangepartners.com. If you haven't joined the Facebook group or the LinkedIn page for Leadership is Changing, feel free to come along and join that uh, community. We'd love to, to have you there. And uh, anyhow, for listeners, it's been great with you uh, being with you today. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, bye for now. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world. 